most of us just go through the world with thoughts in our head and we are thinking and thinking and we just assume that those thoughts are in our head and we're supposed to be thinking them. When you do a meditation practice and instead of thinking those thoughts, actively say, hey, I'm not going to think about that now. I'm going to bring my attention elsewhere. In that moment, you have made a massive transformation because most of those thoughts in our head, many of them are stressful and repetitive and not particularly useful and make us feel bad and cause us to hyperreact and all those things. And so when you can choose to not think that thought, when you can choose to not replay that stressful situation, all of a sudden you've taken control of your mind and your life. Want to truly be the best parent you can be and help your child thrive after their autism diagnosis? This podcast is for all in parents like you who know more is possible for your child. With each episode, we reveal a secret that empowers you to be the parent your child needs now saving you time, energy, and money, and helping you focus on what truly matters most, your child. I'm Cass. And I'm Len. Welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets. Welcome to the show. It's Len. And today, we're going to make the case for meditation. And as you know, we're all about helping you, the parents, show up even bigger for your child on the spectrum. And the secret of all secrets is that investing in yourself is the best way to support your child. It's counterintuitive, but it's absolutely true. So self-care matters and meditation is something that's really widely understood to be incredibly helpful, but very few people are actually able to make it a consistent habit. And that's where our guest comes in. My guest today is Arielle Garten, and she has much to share on how you can do just that. Arielle is a neuroscientist and co-founder of Muse, a leading consumer neurotechnology and meditation company. And the secret this week is meditation equals more ease and less stress for you. Welcome, Arielle. Oh, thank you, Len. It's such a joy and a pleasure to be here. I have to start by saying what important work it is to help and support parents. You know, as a parent myself, as you see your child starting to go into a trauma response, starting to go into a tantrum, starting to respond strongly, it's everything that you can do to keep yourself calm. Um, And so I'm incredibly grateful for the help and support that you give parents because God, we need it. Well, thank you very much for that. I wish I got a playbook when parenting showed up for me, and there really is none. Um, and it is, it's, there's a whole host of challenges. Doesn't matter what the diagnosis is, all parents are are wrestling with the challenges of parenting, and we're all blessed to, to be able to have that opportunity. And being present is really like the light bulb that went off for me in terms of early on, I was anything but present. So the opportunity to just slow down and to see more clearly what's happening, to respond more than react, uh, I I can't talk enough about how important that is. And that's why I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while, because meditation is so powerful. It's not, you know, and you hear a lot of people talking about it, but as simple as it is, I was really vexed with making it work for me for a number of years. So I'm excited for you to be able to share why it's so powerful and to talk more about how I think your company has made it, for me, super easy to develop a practice that escaped me for many years. 
Oh, that's awesome. I'm so glad that you've been able to start a meditation practice because yes, it is such a huge key to both living better as a human and being a great parent. Um, as a parent, it is so easy to get triggered ourselves. It is so easy to get caught up in the moment and to stop paying attention to what our child actually needs. And when you engage a meditation practice, what you're learning is the skill to observe how your body and mind might normally be reacting and then make a different choice. So in the same way that your child who might be having a little tantrum or, you know, getting really stimulated by something, you can look at them and say, actually, everything's fine. Like, why are you reacting this way? Please calm down. We as parents do the exact same thing. You know, we get triggered by being frustrated because our child isn't listening or angry because they've just made a mess and now we have to clean it up or whatever that trigger is. They're triggers for parents. Um, and the ability to observe your own reaction and then make a different choice to just stay calm, to stay in the present moment, to stay with your kid and then calmly deal with the situation is, you know, the night or day to how your child is going to act and react to it. Absolutely. And the child feeds off the parent's energy. And that, that I think everyone can relate to whether you want to believe it or whether you want that to be true or not, it is true. And, uh, and your energy really matters. And to be more present is such an incredibly power, powerful move. And at least for me, my parents never modeled that. Right. So it's, it's not like I have some uh, people I can say I want to be like them. I mean, I think that whole generation presence wasn't something that you know, how parents operate. It was much more reactive. So this is something that is an opportunity, but not in anything that you maybe experienced when you were growing up. Um, but that's why it's such a powerful gift you can give not only yourself, but your child, especially. Yeah. And the good news is, even if you didn't grow up with it as an adult, you now have the choice to train it. So just in the same way that we go to the gym to train our muscles or we, um, you know, learn skills to train our brain, this is a skill that you learn. And once you've learned the skill, you've got it. Like it helps you in every part of your life. So don't, don't worry that this is not how you grew up or this is not what you did before. This is just a thing that you're going to start doing meditating every day for just a few minutes. And slowly you are going to learn this skill, which is going to open up a whole world of possibility. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, once you learn it, it's not like you, you know, it, it goes away, it fizzles. I mean, you, once you learn it, it's something that you can continue to cultivate and practice for life. So, uh, so yeah, super powerful to take a step back though. I mean, I, I know anyone listening has heard of meditation and understands it. But I've heard you talk many times, and I think you have a very useful, simple definition of meditation. Can you share that? Sure. So meditation is simply a practice or a training that we do to cultivate healthy and positive mind states. So meditation is not some weird woo-woo thing. Meditation is not, you know, sitting around with a blank mind waiting to levitate. It's not any of those. The meditation we're talking about here, a secular meditation, is simply the act of sitting focusing your attention on your breath. When your mind wanders, you notice it wanders and then you come back. So it's just an exercise that you do observing your breath and observing your mind for five minutes every day. So it's really just training. Yep. And, and I love the shortness of it, right? So you're saying five minutes is at least sufficient to start off with. Whereas I think a lot of people may feel like oh, to have a meditation practice it's, you know, half hour or an hour and who's got that kind of time. It's an easy excuse not to get started. 
Yeah. And you don't need anything special. So you don't need to sit on the floor. You don't need a special place in your house. You can sit on a chair. You can sit in any way that's comfortable to you and carve out at the beginning, just five minutes. You can even start with just two minutes. If you do two minutes of meditation every day, once or twice a day, wow, you're going to be ahead of the curve. And gradually you can expand it if you like the practice and you want to spend more time in it, but just start with small amounts. So any preconceived notion you might have coming in about why this isn't for you or why this is hard or why this will be weird, throw those all out the window. We're going to make it super simple. Yeah, no, it doesn't have to be complicated. And it also doesn't have to be in any way a competition because I know that was a big stumbling block for me is that I wasn't very good at it and I didn't want to do something that I wasn't really good at. And I have to say after years now, I still don't know if I'm any good at it, but it doesn't matter because it's still beneficial for me to do what I can each day. And, and I know there's benefits, but I think that competitive aspect of my nature was not, was repulsed. I was repulsed by something that I wasn't good at. Yeah. So a lot of people have the notion like, oh, I'm not good at meditation. I suck at meditation. It's okay. We all do. Don't worry about it. That's <laughs> not the point. So there's this notion that you're supposed to sit there and have your mind go blank. And then as soon as you have a thought, you're like, my mind's not going blank. This is awful. Um, so we're also going to throw all that out the window. And I'm just going to start with a very simple explanation of how you do the most basic meditation. So the most basic meditation that most people do is called a focused attention meditation. To do a focused attention meditation, you sit and you put your attention on one thing, usually your breath. So you're just going to be focusing on your breath as you breathe in and breathe out. You can count your breaths to make it easy. So you're just counting your breath, one breath in, one breath out, two breaths in, two breaths out. Eventually, your mind is going to wander away onto another thought. You might think about the grocery list, your kid, the thing you forgot. And then in that moment, instead of following that thought and thinking about what you're going to make for dinner and if your son likes it, you're instead going to say, oh, I'm supposed to be meditating. I'm not going to think about that. I'm just going to bring my attention back to my breath. And you come back and you keep counting your breaths. In breath four, out breath five, in breath six. Eventually, your mind's going to wander away again. And you, instead of following the thought, come on back to your breath. So it's really, really that simple. You're just paying attention to your breath. When your mind not wanders, you notice it. And instead of following the thought, you bring your attention back. Your mind doesn't have to go blank. Nobody's mind does. You know, this is not some big fancy thing. But as you're doing this very simple practice, something quite amazing is actually happening. When you have a thought and, and choose to not follow it, choose to not think about all the things on the grocery list or how you're going to get dinner made, you, in that moment, as you turn away from the thought and onto the thing you want to be focusing on your breath, in that moment, you've changed your relationship to your thinking. So most of us just go through the world with thoughts in our head and we are thinking and thinking and we just assume that those thoughts are in our head and we're supposed to be thinking them. When you do a meditation practice and instead of thinking those thoughts, actively say, hey, I'm not going to think about that now. I'm going to bring my attention elsewhere. In that moment, you have made a massive transformation because most of those thoughts in our head, many of them are stressful and repetitive and not particularly useful and make us feel bad and cause us to hyperreact and all those things. And so when you can choose to not think that thought, when you can choose to not replay that stressful situation, all of a sudden you've taken control of your mind and your life. Yeah, that's incredible. 
And, and uh, it, it so speaks to me too, because I feel like for myself, so much of whatever I was not wanting, what felt hard being a parent, particularly being a parent with my son, moderate to severe on the autism spectrum, so much of what made it feel lousy and miserable, I know was self-generated by my thoughts, but not necessarily by what was happening. It was my, my, my repetitive thoughts on what was happening. So that, that was not fun to know, but it was also very empowering knowing if I'm creating it, I can not create, I can, I can get to a better place where I have these less helpful thoughts or have, have fewer of these thoughts that aren't helping me. You've said something incredibly important. Yeah. So as parents, we are often blaming ourselves repeatedly. We're often, you know, going through the why me or why is this happening? We're thinking thoughts of frustration and we are creating our own misery by doing so. So the situation is what it is. You know, it may not be the best situation, but it is what it is. When we then create judgments around it and um, all the thoughts and the feelings that we have around it and allow those to spiral, that's when it feels really bad. That's when it becomes overwhelming. And in a meditation practice, what you are practicing doing is turning your mind away from those thoughts and onto something else. Now, let's be clear. Some thoughts are good to think. You know, you can planning what your kid's going to be doing, making sure they're okay. All of those things, I'm not saying don't think. You know, you will have those thoughts, but when they start to come up repeatedly, when they are no longer useful, when you recognize like, hey, this is making me feel really bad and that's not actually helping me right now. Meditation is an extraordinary tool to turn your mind away from those thoughts that your brain is just used to spitting out over and over and over again. And we think these thoughts because we think they're supposed to be there. We think they're helpful, but they're not. And so you can gain control over your own mind by moving your attention onto something neutral like your breath or the dinner that you're making, like actively chopping in front of you or the beautiful sun in front of your house, whatever it is, turn your mind away from it and allow the thoughts to move away. And as you do that over time, the endless chatter that's in your mind actually starts to decrease. And if you want, we can get into the neuroscience of why this really works. Yeah, I think we can go there now, but everything you're saying it, it just is so true because it's all it, the whole experience is one big game of even more so noticing what's happening and pivoting in a useful yeah. way. And yeah. that's ultimately what the practice is all about. So, yeah, let's get into the neuroscience. Yeah. Noticing and choosing, noticing and choosing, yes. having your own agency. It's amazing. OK, so in your brain, there is an organ called the amygdala. It's a part of your brain. And its job is to constantly be scanning for danger. Now, this can be real danger like fires or tigers or snakes, um, or it can be perceived danger like a news story about fires or a picture of a snake um, or imaginary danger like imagining a snake in your own mind. And your brain responds essentially the same way to all of these, which is with a sensation of fear and constant representing of that fearful thing. So, you know, it might constantly be bringing up the image of snake, 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 snake in your mind, even though there's no snake there and you're not in any immediate danger. But the amygdala feels like it's job to warn you of this danger, which is why we have part of why we have these repeated thoughts in our mind about things that aren't so great. 
you know, why our brain might give us the thought over and over again, like this was your fault. This will go badly. This is your fault because your brain's trying to tell you, I need you to, you know, you should pay attention to this. You should pay attention to this. Even though we actually don't need to, it's just a very primitive system continuing to keep going. Luckily, we have another part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex is the part of our brain responsible for logical thinking and processing um, effective decisions for thinking, planning, organization, and for inhibition, the ability to actually inhibit and stop the rest of your brain and body from doing things that maybe aren't so helpful. And as a parent with autism, you understand the importance of inhibition because we see our children, you know, not inhibit correctly. And we see the outcomes of that. And we see them as they are just driven by emotion, you know, and and fear and don't have the proper network to come in to say, hey, let's inhibit this action. You know, let's, let's stop. This isn't helpful. So the good news is in a meditation practice, what, uh, brain scans show seems to be happening is that meditation is increasing the activity in your prefrontal cortex. So it's increasing the part of your brain that's good at inhibiting and making decisions and being wise, and it's decreasing the activity in the amygdala. And in brain scans of long-term meditators, you see increased volume of the prefrontal cortex, like the prefrontal cortex getting stronger and stronger like a muscle would. And you see decreased activity of the amygdala. And in some long-term meditators, even a decreased size in the amygdala. So it's really calming down. And it's kind of like the prefrontal cortex is the parent and the amygdala is the child. So the amygdala is the little child that's going to see a shadow on the wall and start freaking out and being scared. And the prefrontal cortex is the parent that comes in, looks around and says, hey, you know, that's everything's okay. Like it's, it's just a shadow and they'll turn on the light and they'll calm down the amygdala and say, Shh, it's all good. The amygdala calms down. Well, through an increased meditation practice, what um, actually seems to be happening is that the prefrontal cortex, the parent, quote unquote, is better able to regulate and calm down the amygdala. We're actually seeing increased connectivity in these two areas. So you're able to essentially exert more parental control over your own brain. No, that's a powerful visual way of looking at things. And uh, I know a lot of our parents are wanting to help their child with kind of improved executive function. So I think what you're talking about is, you know, really with that shift to the prefrontal cortex and having that, you know, more agency and more ability to kind of self-regulate meditation in that case would not only be beneficial for the parent, but even perhaps for the child, even if it's just them taking a couple moments focusing on their breath. Yeah. And we've seen meditation uh, roll out into schools quite effectively. So in one study done by uh, MindUp, which is an organization that brings meditation into schools, they saw a 25% increase in pro-social behavior after the kids started meditation practice, a 20, about 25% decrease in aggression, and even a 15% increase in math scores. So, you know, meditation in the same way that it can train your prefrontal cortex and your executive control function, which as adults, we need to continue to work on. um, It can be quite helpful for children as well. That's fantastic. Uh, You touched on something that I'd like to just kind of focus for a few moments on. Uh, Going back to this thing called autism, especially for our listeners, 
where many people feel like autism is you know, kind of brain injury. There's not much you can do. Get your kid therapy, get therapy for yourself because there's really not much that can change. But the reality is, and what we know now with neuroplasticity, the brain can absolutely and does change. It's not fixed. And you alluded to the fact that meditation actually does something physical, because I think people can get around the idea that meditation helps, you know, calm down, calm yourself down, help with emotions. But there really is, with a consistent daily meditation practice, physical changes that do take place. Yes, meditation can, if you do it regularly, make real physical change in the brain. Exactly the same way that going to the gym and, you know, lifting weights is going to make that muscle stronger in your arms or your legs, and it's going to get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. Meditation is exercise for the brain, and it actually strengthens the parts of the brain that it's working on. Yeah. I mean, for me, that was an explosive, like head exploding thought that you can actually make these structural changes from something that if you just look at it, seems like you're doing nothing. Right. But in the whole chaos of a day to day of a parent's life, taking some time to do nothing, to just be in presence has powerful, powerful effects. So I did that. That was just such a a profound insight that I was uh, really excited to to hear. And when you think about the brain and the mind also, can can you talk a little bit about the distinction between the two? Because what we're talking about is that the physical brain does change. But then can you talk about the difference between someone's mind and their brain? Because they're not the same. Oh, absolutely. Great question. So your brain is the organ, the meat inside of your head, the stuff that's filled with neurons and chemicals that move back and forth, neurotransmitters, um, axons, dendrites, the stuff of the brain, just like your muscle has mass to it, meat. The mind is what arises from the activity of the brain. So whereas the brain might, you know, send a signal from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala, um, the experience in the mind is one of calming. You know, while the amygdala might fire, um, it would then be generating feelings and sensations of fear and then thoughts in your mind about the thing that it just fired on thoughts about the fear. So the mind is the, um, the mind is the thoughts around or created by the activity of the brain and the two can interact with one another. So as we have, for example, a thought of fear, um, that is going to then create sensations of fear on the body, um, which will then create more activity in the meat of the brain, the, the amygdala, uh, which will then create more thoughts of fear. So all of these systems are linked and they can tend to feed forward. And part of what's great about a meditation practice is as you're observing your thoughts and calming your thoughts, you know, choosing not to go down those roads, you are breathing deeply, which calms your body. And you're also not feeding forward in this cycle of thought, feeling, trigger, thought, feeling, trigger, thought, feeling, trigger. You're stopping the thoughts. You're calming the body. You're observing the feelings and letting those settle so that they're not creating more thoughts. And then the whole system calms down. I think that's a lovely way of describing it. It is a cycle. It is the brain and the the mind feeding off of each other. And I guess the way I've, I've told myself how it works is that 
the former way I was operating was much more of this cycle of depletion that was just wearing me out, wearing me down. Whereas it can still be a cycle, but one of more nourishment, which is about taking the intention and sometimes not a lot to fill your tank as opposed to, you know, causing it to burn even faster. And, and, and again, burnout is such a common thing for parents who are dealing with any kind of challenge and and so meditation is just the simplest, easiest, and as you've now shared, um, uh, minimal time invested to really get some benefits. So, you know, it, parents can make excuses about they don't have time for X, Y, and Z, but anyone can take two minutes, five minutes, let's say, and and then do that consistently. You can find that kind of time. Yeah, we actually, um, so the Mayo Clinic in the U.S. has been using Muse for a wide variety of things. And during the pandemic, they actually gave it to their doctors and healthcare professionals in the emergency room on the front line. Um, So, you know, these are people who, as we know, during the pandemic did not have a second's rest because everything was on fire. And these healthcare professionals, um, emergency room doctors and the like used Muse during their daily practice. um, And they found time to do it, you know, in between those like seconds in between patients and they decreased their burnout by 54%. So the Mayo study that was recently published showed that these doctors and healthcare professionals in the pandemic increased their cognitive function, decreased their stress, improved their resilience and decreased the burnout by half um, through using used to meditate. It was quite extraordinary. Yeah, that, that, that's incredible. But I have to say, it's not that surprising to me because honestly, Muse got me through the pandemic and through all the chaos that was happening. And, and I'll just share um, my story because I'm proud of it, but also because I think it's going to be useful for our listeners. Early on, when I tried to meditate, um, I, like literally, it wasn't pleasant. I would fall asleep all the time. And I actually even took an MBSR program at a college and when they were in a group setting and when everyone would get on the floor and to start to do some meditation, I would fall asleep within 10 seconds. Like and literally the instructor thought there was something wrong with me. And I guess there technically was in the sense that it's not normal to fall asleep that quickly, but that's how much I was in overdrive. And I think a lot of our parents might be able to relate to that feeling where you're constantly, constantly moving. So to have a daily practice and something I did consistently each day, I had an incredible number of starts and stops. I've been using the Muse headband probably since 2017, did it for a couple of years and had, you know, thought it was beneficial. But um, but then especially right when the pandemic started is when I started my streak. Because like the beauty of the headband, I think, and we'll talk about this, is how it really helps you to be consistent each day. So I kept going for longer and longer streaks. How many days in a row can I meditate for 20 minutes? And so for a guy who could not meditate and thought it was a real struggle and challenge, the streak that unfortunately just ended a couple months ago, uh, I had 1,129 days in a row that I meditated for 20 minutes each day. Wow, that's amazing. And it was so useful during the pandemic because there's a lot of chaos, a lot of stress. And um, and 20 minutes, you know, I thought was the sweet spot for me. I could do 20 minutes and I had to fight for it certain days when it when it got, you know, when the day got you know, ahead of me. 
but um, but I love the device and I want you to talk about it a little bit, but it's that aspect of it, of the accountability, like, hey, I'm committing to do this each day. This headband, this app is my accountability. And it's because I was I was doing it not to impress anyone, but because I knew this would be beneficial. And I think for our listeners, committing to a few things that you know are beneficial and, you know, every day really prioritizing them is a powerful move. And for me, meditation was one of those things. And Muse just made it so much easier. And I'll even dare say a little bit fun to to make this part of my practice that I wasn't fighting and I wasn't grudgingly doing it. It, it was my sanctuary every day. Oh, that's incredible to hear. Oh, my heart. Thank you. Wow. Well, well thank you. Now, you now tell me about, tell our listeners who aren't aware of what the hell I'm talking about in terms of <laughs> this headband and isn't meditation just you sitting there in silence on focusing on your breath. Would you like to talk about more of the thought that went into it and, and why it is a very, very unique uh, way of making meditation something that you can really be consistent with? Yeah. So this Muse thing that we've been talking about that the doctors at Mayo were using and you've been using. So Muse is a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate. It is a clinical grade EEG. So the same thing that they have in hospitals and clinics put into a very simple little form factor, kind of like a Fitbit on your wrist. So in the same way that a Fitbit tracks your steps, the Muse tracks your meditation. And it's actually quite an amazing device because it's able to detect in real time when you're meditating and when your mind is wandering. So we talked about meditation being not that your mind is blank, but that you're going to have some thoughts come up. Your mind's going to wander. And then you notice that your mind has wandered and then you come back to your breath. Well, Muse makes that whole process easy by translating your brain's activity into guiding sounds. So when your mind is wandering, you hear it as stormy. And that is your cue to bring your attention back to your breath. And then the storm quiets. So it's actually a very simple, very lovely experience that shows you when you're meditating and guides you to do it right. So your mind wanders onto a thought, the sound of the storm picks up, you come on back to your breath, the storm quiets. So it's really motivating to hear when you're quote unquote doing it right. It makes it much easier and much more efficient. And then after the fact, you get data, charts, graph scores, things that make it fun and easy and engaging to continue and to see your progress. Yeah, no, that's, uh, and it's that feedback, the real-time feedback that is really useful and it's not disruptive. So so at least with program that I would usually do would be, you know, if, if you weren't doing it right, let's say if my mind was racing, then I would hear the wind and the surf. But if uh, things were clicking and I was in that more calm, present state, then you would hear gently birds chirping. And so you could feel good that you're in a good zone, but it wasn't, uh, something that was jarring and then would bring me out of presence. Yeah, it really is like you're just hearing your own mind, which makes the whole like weird, confusing process of meditation much more straightforward when there's something telling you, oh, yeah, nope, you're off track. Yep, come on back. You're doing it right. Right, right. And then for me, the gamif- gamification of it, right, where it's like, okay, I have a streak. How long can I make this streak go? You know, each each session you get a score, a calm score that shows, you know, how present were you during that session? And it's useful to look at that to just say, okay, how am I doing day to day? Am I moving 
and getting ultimately into a calmer state, which was my goal, but knowing that each day is going to be different. So there's no such thing as a bad day because if there's a day that I got a really low calm score, um, I just looked at it and said, well, that's the day I really needed it more um, as opposed to that's the day I didn't do it right. Exactly. We, we power through whatever it is and meditating on days when you're quote unquote, not at your best or not doing your best is a fabulous way to bring yourself some calm and peace that you need to get your brain focused on what matters to calm your mind and body, and then go back out there. So it's not about the score. It's about the benefit and the relief that you get through the activity. Absolutely. But if you're anything like me, the score is also something that's motivating. You know, it's motivating. To, totally. To get my score uh, to improve it. So I would actually, um, I created a spreadsheet of my scores and I would monitor my average score over a three-month period. And I would like have a target that I was shooting for because I, I did want to improve how well I was able to, to, to drop into presence. And I did. I By doing that, I got, you know, we, we coach our parent, the parents in our coaching program about how to use goals in a useful way. And that's how I used it for myself. And it did. It helped me to take it seriously in a sense of wanting to get better and to, um, because I saw them, how it benefited me in so many aspects of how I was operating. Um, and, and if some of our listeners, cause we've done so many podcasts on the impact, the negative impact of EMFs and why you want to minimize exposure from overall health and wellness, particularly for your child. I was a little hesitant with the Muse product because I've been anything that goes on my head. I wouldn't want necessarily anything electronic, uh, but in this case, I measured the Muse headband before I started using it with my equipment in terms of electric fields, magnetic fields, and it's Bluetooth. So there's some uh, Wi-Fi and it's just, it's minimal, especially when you compare it to the benefit. Like when I did the calculation for myself, you know, anything that you have that's electronic is going to give off something. This was minimal and the benefits far exceeded any concerns I had from an EMF perspective. So um so yeah, so it's been a, a huge part of how I operate. And, uh, you know, I think in this case, having feedback on how well your brain's operating and how it's functioning is incredibly useful. And uh, and again, I'm a data guy, so I appreciate what Muse offers. <laughs> That's awesome. Hearing you talk, I'm sort of thinking about how it often comes into a whole household. So, you know, one person in the household might bring it in as the data person and they're like, oh my God, I love, you know, the data it's giving me. Then another person who's totally uninterested in data and more into, you know, the emotional side, they'll love the content and the inspirational guidance and they'll start meditating. And then the kids who are driven by, you know, the teenagers in the house who are driven by the gamification aspects of it will then start to compete with mom and dad and be like, I got more birds than mom and dad did. And mom and dad are like, oh, how terrible that my son was meditating and is excited about it. Awesome. And you're like, yes, please get more birds than I do. <laughs> but you pretend that you actually care how many birds that you got <laughs> so that they stay motivated. But it's it's amazing. I've seen so many times, you know, one person bring it in, somebody else get excited about the thing that jets with them because there's so many different ways to do it. And then the kids start meditating. And that's when, you know, my heart starts soaring, like massive win. Absolutely. And and that 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 is a great opportunity. It's just if you do think that your child would benefit, the best way is for you to do it yourself. Do it 
use use the met the the muse device or just meditate if they see you doing it it's more likely that they will do it but if you you know buy a muse headband and give it to your your child and tell them to use it uh and you're not using it yourself less of less of the odds that you'll have success there um but yeah i think kids can definitely get a lot of benefit and they'll find it fun as well um you have a whole bunch of different programs in there you can be in any kind of uh, environment you'd like, whether it's the beach, the mountains. Um, so again, I think what you've solved is that you've made it interesting and and fun and, and something that people would want to do as opposed to feeling like they have to do. And I should clarify on kids, um, we comply with, uh, you're on board to complying with GDPR and other standards. Um, so we technically say, that you have to be 16 and older to use it. So it's going to ask you your age when you come in. Um, we have had studies done with Muse with younger kids. Um, there's one study done by the Kansas City, Kansas State University, and they showed that children in grade seven, eight using Muse were able to decrease the number of times they went to the det- detention by around 70%. <laughs> it's like quite massive. Um, but so technically we say the headband itself should only be used for kids over 16 um, because of GDPR compliance. Um, and under 16, we have lots of guided content in there that you can use without the headband. So um, amazing meditations for whatever might be coming up in your life and the kids might enjoy those. Yeah, no, thanks for adding that. But yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Just hit play, put it on speaker. And, uh, you know, again, it's... Uh, this is mainly, I, I think, a real great opportunity for parents. And again, just to introduce meditation in whatever way that feels right for you, for your your child. Um, again, doesn't have to take a long amount of time, uh, but just helping your child get more present to be able to regulate breath work, all those things can be um, can be really, really powerful. And again, if you can find a way to make it fun and interesting and engaging for them, your odds of success go way up going back to the thoughts that are circulating in a parent's head, right? So again, I've one other thing I've heard you talk about, and, and it was going to possibly be the title of this, uh, of this discussion is that you are not your thoughts. And I thought that that was a just statement that's very profound and very important. And uh, at least for me, it was very relevant. Can you expand on that concept? Oh, sure. So most of us, as I said, go through life just with these thoughts in our head. And we assume that those thoughts make up us. You know, I have thoughts of sadness or thoughts that are depressing. I'm a depressed person. I'm a sad person. I have thoughts that maybe I didn't do this right and I'm not good enough. And that's, you know, maybe who I am. I'm probably who I am. These are my thoughts. The reality is you are actually not your thoughts. You are an awesome human being who's actually quite capable and, you know, well-adjusted to the world and probably also beautiful and gregarious and nice and all of these things. But we have thoughts that tell us otherwise. And because we're there in our head, we tend to believe them. But if you are, for example, walking down the street with your best friend and somebody came up to them and said, you know, you're awful or your hair looks terrible or, you know, you're a bad person or you're, you're not good at this. Like, be like, what are you talking about? It's some stranger. You just get angry at them and tell them to go away. Um, but we believe the things that we hear on our own mind. And with a meditation practice, for many people, that's the first moment when you get to stop and challenge those thoughts. And if you can 
be meditating and start thinking about the grocery list and say, actually, I don't need to think about the grocery list now. I can think about that later. This is my meditation time back, you know, back to my breath. Well, when your mind comes up and gives you the thought of you're not good enough or this is never going to end or, um, you know, this is I'm an awful person, whatever it is, you can do the same thing. You can stop and say, hey, you're just a thought. You're not necessarily true. I don't need to be thinking you right now. And you can let that one go too and bring your attention on what's in front of you. Or you can even go one step further and replace it with a thought that you want to think about yourself, you know, that I am good enough or I am competent or I am a loving parent. And when you stop getting sucked into the things that your brain tells you about you that are actually negative and don't make you feel good and are not helpful, that moment is one of extraordinary liberation. You know, in the same way that you wouldn't want your child having negative self-talk because you know, you know, they're, they are who they are. They're awesome. They're lovable. They're them. And negative self-talk only brings them down and makes it worse. You don't need that negative self-talk either. And you have the choice to turn your mind away from it, let it go, acknowledge that it's not real, it's not useful, it's not true, and turn your attention to something that you do care about. That's great. No, there's incredible freedom there. And so much of it comes down to the beliefs that we hold. So the fact that you can actually entertain the idea that those thoughts aren't you, they don't define you, they're not true, they're not permanent, and that you can create the narrative that's supportive. And again, it comes down to what are you believing about yourself, about the situation, about your child. There's so much agency and freedom there. So I think that's a lovely way to end our conversation. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be here. I think you've created something that's an incredible tool for any parent, regardless of what's happening in your world. And it's definitely served me. So again, uh, thank you for creating it and for the work that you and your Dynamite Company are doing. Oh, thank you so much. It's it's my joy and pleasure. And I have to say, it's the thing that taught me to meditate too. And it's the thing that makes me a better parent and a better wife. If I'm really honest with myself, it's really, it's possibly where it's shone the most, um, allowing me to be present and non-defensive with my husband when things get rough. Absolutely. And I know that's such a common, common thing that our parents are wrestling with. So, so uh, yeah, all for you to consider to figure out how to work more meditation into your daily life. The cumulative effect is key. So doesn't matter how much a little bit each day uh, has huge, it just pays huge dividends. So thank you again, Ariel. Oh, thank you. And much love to everyone out there. You're doing awesome. Team parents, we're doing awesome. Want to discover your top autism parenting blind spot? Take our free quiz today. Go to allinparent.com slash go.